Good morning. We've been talking this week about repentance or the change that is necessary in our lives. That it's a lifetime task. Not only is it a daily task, it's, it's a task for our lifetime. Martin Luther famously said that the whole of the Christian life is repentance. And one of the Puritans that I like reading, John Flavel, said, Keeping the heart is a constant work. Keeping the heart is a work that is never done until life is over. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we see um, probably one of the most important passages uh, helping us to understand um, what this lifetime task is all about, both God's role and our role. Listen, Listen to what the first three verses have to say from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down At the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So change is a long-distance race, not a sprint. In this, the writer of Hebrews says, sin cannot be tolerated because it sabotages your race. It tangles you up, it trips you up. Weights might not be sinful in and of themselves, but their impact is harmful because their impact is on our ability to run our race. A disciple of Jesus guards against, this is the heart thing again, guards against any sin or any weight that would distract them from running and getting their eyes off of Jesus. Repentance is really a resetting of what we fix our eyes on. When our eyes are on our sins, our eyes are on getting our needs met by our sins, when we become the brokers of our own needs, we get off track and our ability to change is hindered. This change is never a one-time event. It's a lifetime. Keeping your heart is a lifetime occupation. There is a progressiveness about sanctification. We talked yesterday about that there are moments, there are crisis moments where it seems that we advance with some, with some rapidness. But there are also all of these days where we just do the race that is before us. It's a lifetime. It's a marathon, not a sprint, Tim Chester says. The habits and thought processes are sin, of sin, are not easily unlearned. We want, we want to look at this in some depth today, that what God is up to in this lifetime change project is he's untangling you from a lifetime of habits and thought process, processes that have something other than God as the source, and so therefore is sin. Remember, whatever is not of faith is sin. The only thing that counts is faith working itself out, expressing itself in love. There are few, there are few quick fixes.
perfection in this life. I, I just don't believe, unlike Tim Chester in this, I don't believe that we're going to be perfect in this life. As a matter of fact, every time in my life I thought I had achieved a certain level of, uh, you know, of, of maturity or whatever, God, in that, that level then shows me a new area that he wants to rid my heart of. So we can and we always must be changing. It, again, I, I, it's so interesting. I've been around the church my whole life. And it is fascinating to me how many people I've met as they got older who stopped even trying to change or believing they could change. You know, the Holy Spirit will be changing you into the image of Christ, of God's dear Son, until you meet that dear Son face to face. But it's a daily choice of whether or not you will cooperate. It's a daily choice where you fix your attention, where you fix your eyes. The scripture here says that we daily fix our eyes on Jesus. It, it's, such an, it's such an interesting thing is that in any situation that you're ever in, any relationship, financial, health situation, you can always turn your attention and your gaze upon the Lord, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Daily we throw off sin. Daily we run. Daily we consider Jesus who endured the cross for us. See, the the minute you go into self-pity, the minute you go into feeling sorry for yourself, you have taken your eyes off of Jesus who endured the cross. Now, it's almost impossible. I'm not sure it's even possible to not feel sorry for yourself at times or experience self-pity. But that's where we daily reset. Where am I fixing my eyes? The experience of Jesus is built in our daily choices. So what are the things that the Spirit has been calling upon you to throw off? What is it that's hindering the change? What do you need to take your eyes off of so that you can more fully focus on Jesus? One of the things that one of the things that's uh, in a practical way that many of us look at is we often have our eyes fixed on, on the outcomes of circumstances or the results that we want from our efforts, the way we want life to go. And it's usually when we have our eyes on the results and our eyes on outcomes, particularly when it has to do with people that we love, or circumstances that we we desire, or goals that we have set, that we take our eyes off of Jesus, and we turn God into the means of our own ends, instead of realizing that if, if, if you're hallowing his name, if he is ultimate to you, that's what hallow means, Jesus, your name is ultimate to me, then any result that you elevate to ultimate is now displaced Jesus in your sight. And it is a battle to demote the things that you want or the things you think you need to demote relationships, job, health, to demote those things to their proper place and to not allow them 
to become ultimate because once something becomes ultimate, then God becomes your assistant. He's there to make it happen for you instead of being God. Well, this book of Hebrews, particularly this 12th chapter, is so important to us. It's written to a people who are so beaten down. They were in a time of great persecution, difficulty, struggles, suffering. Some had left the faith. Some had returned to Judaism because it was safer. And so this book is written in a, in a difficult time, and it's a pastoral book, kind of a pastoral counseling, actually. The writer is wanting the people to experience the flourishing of the Lord in the midst of brutal realities of their life. And so the first metaphor, analogy, that he uses is he says life is a race. And he explains why to run the race. And in many ways, he, he unpacks here how, you, how. So life is a race. That's the what of your life. Why to run the race, the meaning, purpose, and then the how to run the race. So from verses 1 through 4, everything is based on this life is a race. Let us run the race marked out for you. Can you... Hear me this morning that God has marked out a race for you. This is, this is that whole idea of alignment for your assignment. Your race is your assignment. Not somebody else's race. You don't get to critique you know, the race God gives someone else. You don't get to compare and say, I got a, I got a short, you know, short straw here. I got the bad deal. And the word race here is the Greek word agon which is the word for, the word we get in English, agony. So let, that's, this is going to be a hard, this is a hard verse. Let us run the agony, let us run the agony that's been marked out for us. Now, it's either a race, a wrestling match, or a, a heated contest. So the, the scriptures never gives a false image that if you have enough faith, you won't have agony. The scripture says that this is, you have an assigned agony. You know, you have an assigned agon. And so life, according to scripture, is this kind of wrestling, contest, race. has struggle. It has a certain regiment to it. And this regiment includes difficulties. This is why and, and this, this verse is amazing. No discipline. This is verse 11 of chapter 12. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but rather painful, agonizing. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The peaceful fruits of righteousness is how I learned this verse. And the word train here, guess what that word is? Gymnesto. Gym is the word we get gym, gymnasium. So here, here the writer of Hebrews is saying, you've got an agon, a race, a contest, an agony marked out for you. And, and you're you know, being trained by the Holy Spirit through the circumstances and the people in your life 
that this life is your gymnasium. It's your training ground. It's, it's the place where the difficulties of life can overwhelm you. And uh, to be, and in some sense, to not expect that this race would be a contest, that this race would involve agony, that this race has to do with training. And, you know, just because it's not the plan you have for your life doesn't mean, by, according to the scriptures, there isn't a, an ultimate plan of training behind this. So spiritual training is not unlike, or faith training is not unlike athletic training. So this is one of the hardest things to trust, and it's one of the places where we least want sometimes to let this truth in, but the sufferings and the difficulties of life are given to you in such a way that they are not wasted, that there's training, discipline, strengthening involved. The writer of Amazing Grace, John Newton, was an incredible theologian, an amazing writer. And he said this, Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that God withholds. Sometimes, uh, I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but sometimes I'm in, uh, as a pastor, as a, sometimes as a speaker at a conference, whatever it might be, I'm introduced into worlds that are different from my own. Like one, one of the things I've talked about is I love playing golf. Golf is one of those things I really enjoy. But I, I don't have the kind of financial resources to join a country club or have a place where I play golf. I look online, get deals, and, and go do the cheap golf, golf things. But sometimes when I'm at a conference or sometimes members of the church or different people will have access to a, a country club or a country club you know, uh, experience for me. And when, when I go, I, I love it. But sometimes, uh, sometimes what happens is this, and I go, I go why, why can't I belong here? Why don't I have the money to be a member in this place? And some, some of the places I've gotten to go to were pretty amazing. Some, some were, were ordinary uh, places, but they were, all of them were outside of my, my financial strata. And I can, I can sometimes, instead of just enjoying the fact that I'm getting the opportunity to play that day or play with a friend or whatever it might be, I start to feel jealousy or envy. And, and when it comes up, I don't beat myself up. What I do is I say, I say, what's going on in my heart that is encumbering, that is weighing me down? This is what this scripture is teaching. What is weighing me down that I'm not happy with the race that's marked out for me? Why am I thinking that God is withholding some necessary things in my life? You see, if you begin to question his provision, now you don't deny that you're questioning it. You don't hide that you're questioning it. Suppressing that question will only lead to greater twistedness and brokenness. But bringing it up and being willing to say, okay, I... There are some benefits that other people have. There are some blessings that other people have. And the Bible says rejoice with them 
Don't envy them. Don't covet them. But if our hearts get bitter and angry because of certain things we don't have, certain parts of our assignment that are different from somebody else, and if we get envious, covetous, or whatever it might be, what it does is not only hurt them, but it really, really hurts us. One of the places of hardness of heart is that we think God is, is, is in some ways obligated to service us, to be useful to us, to give us all our dreams and desires. And, and Newton is hitting on something so important that entangles us. He's saying, everything that God sends, even the, even the things he allows, the agonies he allows, he's going to make an incredible purpose out of that. And if he withholds something, whether it's financial status or it's some comfort or whatever it might be, if he withholds it, he's withholding it because it's not necessary for the training. But you see, if I keep questioning him when I'm put into circumstances or I see things in other people's lives that are different than mine, I will get entangled. I won't run my race. I'll be angry because I don't have what the race others have. This is hard. It is hard. It's hard. It's a hard saying that Newton gives to us, and yet it's a true saying. Jesus was not allowed to be humiliated one second longer than necessary for his for the payment of our sin to be made. And when the debt was paid, it is finished, Jesus said. His exaltation begins. God does not waste your sorrows. There's not, a, there's not an agony of the contest that will not become glory in eternity for you. And so Hebrews is, is giving us an incredible physical analogy to the spiritual building of your faith and your character. I mean, you, you know that if you want to be strong physically, you have to exercise. Lisa keeps telling me, because, you know, because of my heart issues and all like that, she says, you've got to push yourself. You've got you to be, and, and part of me doesn't want to, because I don't, I don't like sometimes the feeling like uh, my chest hurts. It makes me a little afraid. And yet the doctors say I have to push to that edge or I, want, I won't get stronger. And so you you take the muscles of your body, you, you stress them, you push them, you, you, in some ways you're opposing them so that they will break down the muscle and re-reset, be rebuilt. In, in other words, this physical pain is necessary for physical gain. Newton says everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So what is the book of Hebrews telling us about the spiritual life? He's saying, the the book of Hebrews is saying, your faith will never grow if it's not tested, if it's not opposed. Your patience will never grow unless it's taxed, unless it's pushed. Your compassion will never grow unless you're in circumstances that tap into that compassion. Your courage will never really be real and will not grow unless it's challenged and your courage will be challenged. See, these difficulties 
that you're facing are necessary for what is even there, your faith, your patience, your commitment, your compassion, your courage, those things that are a part of you now, you know, they're there, but they must grow. They're not enough. I mean, think about the paradoxical aspect of the sufferings and difficulties of life. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, I mean, when you weight train and you do sets and you do repetitions and you add more weights, what are you doing? Well, you feel like you're getting weaker and weaker because the exercise itself becomes more and more difficult. But the fact is, the weaker you feel, the stronger you're becoming. That's how exercise works. Well, that's how faith works. The weaker you're feeling and you're staying in it and you're not giving up, you're not quitting, the weaker you feel, the actually the stronger you're becoming. Your patience may seem like it's getting weaker. Your courage, your faith, whatever it is. But in fact, it's actually getting stronger the whole time. Because that's how it works. There's a plan here. There's a purpose to it all. And it's so important, the writer of Hebrews says, it's so important you see this by faith. Otherwise, you will grow weary and your heart will become disheartened. You see, what we expect, what we anticipate, what we hope in is the spiritual generator, the energy generator of our spiritual life. See, what happens to us uh, is often agonizing. What's happened to us is difficult spiritual training. But what undoes us, you know, what, what causes us to get disheartened is that we're shocked by it. We're surprised by it. We get filled with confusion. We get filled with self-pity. You know, more than half of the pain isn't what's happening to us, but it's the pain of not being able to understand, to process, to be, in, in, a, in a sense, to have our expectations unmet. So what is, what is the writer of Hebrews doing? What is the Holy Spirit doing through this writing? Well, he's trying to prepare us. Um, a Scottish author that I love, is, his name is George MacDonald. He wrote, uh, he's kind of a precursor to C.S. Lewis and was a huge influence on C.S. Lewis. And he, said, he called what, 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 how we respond to suffering, he called it, it, it that it comes from our, our theory of life. And, and this is really important what he says. He says, everything difficult points to something more than our theory of life yet embraces. See, your theory of life from the beginning of your Christian life to the end has got to expand because our theory of life, generally speaking, does not allow for the full or exhaustive view of reality. So when I am surprised, shocked, disappointed, down, you know, uh, uh, feeling down. What it's saying is I have a theory of life that is not yet broad enough, yet not yet deep enough to embrace reality. It is not that God has let me down. It's my theory of life that has let me down. When I melt down, when I freak out, it means that the way I look at life is inadequate. I haven't really embraced reality. Now, in other words, when, I talk about, when we talk about theory of life, we're really talking about 
the way you look at all reality. But again, it comes down to this. What have I invested as ultimate? What, what makes life matter? What makes life have meaning? In other words, you know, where, where do I see optimum or maximum happiness? Or, or have I made comfort and, 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 you know, kind of temporary happiness? Have I made that ultimate so that there's no room to understand the purpose and the, the meaning of suffering and difficulties? We live in a, a society that the highest, highest values are happiness, pleasure, comfort. So when the difficulties come, so many people see them as random. They see them as accidental. They see them as, you know, God not either not being good or not being powerful. Um, if your theory of life is not adequate to include that suffering and even agony is a part of something that God will not waste but has purpose that he's not allowing it so it will destroy you, but he's allowing it so that you, you can uh, see yourself beginning to be transformed from weak to strong, being transformed from self-centered to Christ-centered. Um, in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, he explains why we run the race. And so interesting is he goes from the metaphor of race this agonizing discipline and training. And now he switches the entire metaphor because he doesn't want you to think that God is your coach. That is never, that is never the approach of a follower of Jesus to God. He's not your coach. He switches to Father because that's really who God is. Now the the life itself may seem like a race, a contest, a wrestling match. But your relationship with God is never that he's your coach. Your relationship with God is that he's your father. Now, there, there's some reasons for this, but let me give you one. A coach doesn't run the race with you, and the coach doesn't run the race for you. Think about what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. See, it, it is true that the Holy Spirit is asking you to live for God. It's true that you would yield and surrender your life to God and live for God. Live for the glory of God. These things are true. But it's never that he asks you to live your life for God apart from living your life in God. And so he's never your coach. He's the source of your life. He's the strength of your life. God's not just in your life. He is your life. He who has the Son has the life. He who has not the Son has not the life. So in some ways, God isn't saying, will you live your life for me? He's really saying, will you let me live my life in you and for you? Will you let me be your life? Because this is what the Father does. He doesn't want a life separate from you. And He's not offering His gifts, His power, apart from Him being present. So in order for us to really understand what's going on in this struggle that we're in, is that God, as Father, is exercising fatherly care. He does discipline us. I mean, how can it be 
that a father could love you and not correct you. That's what this is about. And in some ways, what I see with most people is they hate to be corrected and they hate to be instructed. And yet verse 5 and 6 says, My son, my daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, his correction, his instruction, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as sons. See, we, we often get afraid about the punishment, like, oh, it's going to be some kind of ultimate punishment. No, God is the ultimate teacher as a father. He lets you discover the consequences of your choices. But in the sense of punishment, you see, the ultimate punishment has always and forever been paid. That's why Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation. The Father's never going to ask a second payment of you for what Christ has already paid. So what is the Father doing? The Father's correcting. The Father's instructing. The Father is chipping away that which is entangling you that which is encumbering you. You know, human parenting is never perfect. But God's parenting is perfect. Verse 10 says, you know, our parents did what they thought was best, but God disciplines you. And, and though the word here is good for our good, what he's really talking about is God has this plan for greatness for you. Because he says, He's disciplining you, he's instructing you, he's correcting you, that you may share in his holiness. From the the least impressive of us to the most impressive, none of us in any way compares to the holiness of God. And yet God is saying to every believer who will listen and follow his fatherly ministry, his fatherly administrations in our life, that he is turning you into greatness, into glory. Man, this this is amazing. He says, endure this hardship. If you don't, you're not going to grow. But if you do, he's going to clothe you in splendor. You know, we talked yesterday about how God took Israel um, and took particularly the city of Jerusalem. She was bloody. She was pagan. She was not of any status, and he elevated her to be his queen. This is what God wants to do. He wants to clothe you in his splendor, but in order to do that, he must instruct you. Think for a minute about Jacob's son, Joseph. Joseph becomes a great man. He saves his family. He saves the line of Judah, his brother, And Jesus comes through the line of Judah. But Joseph had to save his family. And in verse 20 of Genesis 50, he looks at his brothers who didn't understand the plan, didn't understand the purpose. And he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now that's God's instruction. That's God's discipline. Others may mean it for evil, but God will intend it and weave it for good. We're not going to make it if we don't see that. Well, how do we run this race? Well, let me give you two or three here quick. There's a practical humility. You can't endure the hardship as corrective, as instructive, as bringing about your greatness if you will not humble yourself and say, I'm the child, he's the parent. 
And what I don't know, I don't even know. <laughs> but he knows all. That you begin to believe that he knows the path to greatness. And that nothing is being wasted. He's withholding what needs to be withheld. And he's giving what needs to be given, even when he allows suffering in our lives. And then that leads to, if I'm practically humbled, then I'm also going to be practically obedient. And it means I'm not running away from God. I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm not going to in, uh, quit my worshiping and my fellowshipping when it gets tough. I'm going to keep it up. I'm not going to budge is the practical obedience here. And then the last one is practical evaluation. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Look at your attitudes. Look at your responses. Look at your reactions. Look at your behavior and say, what in my life is entangling me? I need to throw that off. I need to get rid of that. But the dynamic of that goes back to one simple thing. My eyes must be turned to Jesus, the author, the finisher, the pioneer of my faith. What was the joy that was set before him? You were. You're the one thing he didn't have before the cross that he then had because of the cross. For the joy set before him, you were the joy set before him that caused him to do, endure the cross. Is there anything he can ask of you? He who has proven his love for you. He who was forsaken that you not be forsaken. Rejected so that you're not rejected. Became sin so that you no longer have the penalty of sin on you. Can he ask too much of you? He wants to clothe you in the splendor. Will you let him? In Jesus' name, amen.